Welcome to Reactionary Minds, a project of the Unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. My guest today is Greg Sargent. He's a columnist at the Washington Post and author of the book An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. Our discussion digs into the state of the American right, its conflicting constituencies, and its fringe and conspiratorial elements, as well as how the press has covered all of it. What is up with the American right right now? That's a pretty big question. Um, you know, I think one thing that's going on with the American right at this moment is that we're seeing the development of a genuine kind of counter movement to the Republican Party uh, in the form of what we often call the NATCOMs, um, the post-liberals and so forth. And all of those strains are beginning to fight with each other as well. But what seems to me to be different is that there's a substantial intellectual challenge to the Republican Party that is, you know, materially, I think, a break with some of what we've seen in the recent past. The post-liberals are really trying to articulate something that does genuinely challenge the the uh, the dead consensus or or what have you, uh, which, as it's often called. Um, I actually find a lot to you know appreciate in some of that writing. I disagree with a lot of it, but the fact that they challenge kind of the plutocratic and libertarian bent of the Republican Party, I think, is kind of a welcome thing. Although it seems to me to be pretty shallow a lot of the time. But if if to to really sum it up, I mean. I think it's such a big question, but that would be my simple answer to it, that there seems to be a kind of series of intertwined but kind of conflicting movements that are really challenging the Republican Party as we've understood it, you know, for, I guess, since Reagan. One of those tensions, though, seems to be you mentioned the the NATCONs, the National Conservatives, which is at least – presents itself as an intellectual movement. And there are certainly like very smart people in, you know, like I think, I think Josh Hawley is arguably the, the scariest senator in office right now, but he is unquestionably a smart and well-read and well-educated guy, which is one of the things that makes him terrifying. So you have that and they have been trying to articulate this anti-elitist views and trying to articulate the populism, but the energy is in something that looks very, very different and not at all intellectual, which is the Trumpism, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, the election conspiracy stuff that you've written a lot about. So when you say they're they're against the Republican Party, I guess like which is it? Which is the Republican Party right now? I mean, I think the the sort of the boundaries, the outer boundaries on the right of the Republican Party are, are pretty fuzzy, right? You know, if you take someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who you brought up, there was a point at which she looked to be kind of challenging the Republican Party, but then a decision was made to kind of bring her into the fold in spite of the fact that, you know, she had endorsed political violence and had engaged in fairly explicit, uh, you know, anti-Muslim bigotry and so forth. Um, I think what happened was after January 6th, 
to me, the most telling thing that happened, or maybe one of the most telling things that is telling things that has happened uh, in in the last few years, is the sudden lurch uh, by Kevin McCarthy from condemning Trump and blaming him for the violence, and privately concluding that he should resign. To a couple weeks later, I might have that wrong, but it's around a couple weeks, making a pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago and patching things up with Trump and very publicly absolving him of blame for the trauma that he put the country through uh, in the lead up to January 6th and on January 6th. And, And right there, I think a decision was made by McCarthy, how conscious, I don't know, um, that there was a certain set of constituencies that the Republican Party absolutely needed to hold on to. Um, a lot of them are associated with, you know, Trump's insurrection. Um, maybe a lot of them are just sort of more garden variety Trump voters who were brought into the Republican coalition by Trump. Remember, I mean, in 2016, and in, in a weird way, even more so in 2020, Trump really activated these constituencies that just had been kind of dormant. And I, I think Lindsey Graham actually provided a quote that to me is really one of the perfect encapsulations of the situation. This was maybe a year ago, maybe a bit more, um, but uh, it was the point at which they were really debating disciplining Liz Cheney, who was demanding accountability for the insurrection and essentially saying that the Republican Party could not function as an actor in a democracy as long as it continued to apologize for Trump's insurrectionism and continued to play footsie with it or even actively embrace it. And Lindsey Graham said something to the effect of Liz Cheney has made a decision that the Republican Party can't grow with Trump. I've made a decision that the Republican Party can't grow without Trump. And I think that's the fundamental thing that happened with McCarthy, with Graham, with a lot of the institutional players who decided that they were going to do everything they could to apologize for, propagandize away, minimize, um, and so forth, the insurrection and, and continue to, you know, to ha- continue to hang on to these constituencies. And so it's a good question. Are those constituencies the Republican Party or not? Um, I think they kind of weren't. And someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene was kind of an outlier. But little by little, they've sort of subsumed that, you know, set of constituencies and set of uh, leading lights like Marjorie Taylor Greene. So in a way, I don't know if you can really locate the exact boundary, the the exact outer boundary of the Republican Party. I mean, we saw this just this, you know, just very recently, right, with the with the Fuentes thing. you know, I talked to Kathleen Ballou. Do you know who she is? She's the uh, she's a historian of, of of the white power movements who's really one of the best. She wrote um, Bring the War Home, which is a wonderful book. I highly recommend it to your to your um, listeners. If you want to know about the white power movement, that's the book to read. And she and I discussed this and she essentially said that, you know, there's a direct line from Republican elites essentially saying the insurrection was OK and not a big deal, tourism or whatever, right to the Fuentes dinner, which essentially told all these constituencies that the Republican Party is open for business for you. You can treat this as a vehicle to try and organize within an influence. 
And so I think that may be the way to think about it. I don't know if that's a great answer, but it it's hard to locate that outer line. When you mention people like Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham and and the embrace of Trump when they had, you know, as mentioned, like most of them had been had been in opposition to him when he was running until he achieved the the nomination. They were anti-Trumpers. We saw a lot of anti-Trumpers shift to being fairly pro-Trump over the last five, six years and so on. How much of that is a strategic move on their part? Like they just recognize that all the energy in in their base in the party is on the side of Trump. He has still has enormous sway. We keep hearing stories like maybe his his influence is finally fading, but that hasn't been borne out in any dramatic fashion yet. Um, they know that primaries really matter, and as long as Trump is Trump, it's going to be hard to win primaries if you oppose him and so on. So there's the strategic side, but I often wonder how much of it is the the shift is kind of reverse because the right has always been – I mean this is like definitionally. The right has always been a reactionary movement. Um, that's what it has meant to be on the right, even going back to you know pre-American conservatism. It was reactions against breaking down of class structures in Great Britain and so on. It's a reactionary movement. It's always had racist elements. It's always – like anti-Semitism has always been a part of the right. Um, Anti-feminism has always been a part of the right. And so – Rather than them kind of holding their noses and embracing the a lot of the ugliness that that Trumpism and the fringe movements, that how much of it is just they were holding their noses and kind of embracing what we consider like social liberalism and toleration and so on because that's what the elites liked and Trump gave them more of an excuse to let their inner reactionaries out. I mean, I think it's it, it's probably helpful to think of it on, as on a spectrum. Right. I mean, you know, I think a lot of the a lot of the uh, the big donor types probably really do have a, a, a tendency towards some form of social liberalism, um, but they'll make alliances with, you know, whoever they have to in order to protect their material and economic interests and so forth and to protect capital and everything. Um, whereas some other Republican elites right, aren't really quite as business-oriented. They're maybe a little bit more intellectual, although you have pretty big breaks there, too. I find one, one interesting thing about the never-Trumpers, to me, is that there, there really is a dramatic split in the kind of, you know, Republican elite intelligentsia right there, right? They really went in sharply different directions, with some kind of going all into Trumpism, and others going like all out of Trumpism, like, you know, a complete and direct, uh, you know, repudiation of everything that Trump stands for, at least in terms of, you know, um, his his hostility to, to interracial democracy and so forth. It's really interesting. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but if you, I spend some time, I, I actually talk to the never Trumpers a lot, you know, Crystal and those types. And, and. I've actually been kind of surprised because so the liberal take on the never Trumpers has been, oh, okay, you know, they're rejecting Trump, but fundamentally and, you know, when it comes to voting rights, when it comes to 
economic policy. They're still basically in the same camp as Trump is. But I've actually seen them kind of really move away from, you know, the Republican Party in those areas, too. I mean, you see some of the never Trumpers really essentially defending universal health care now and defending voting rights, which is really not something that I think a lot of liberals uh, expected and, and some won't even acknowledge today. Um, I, I got kind of far afield from your original question, but, you know, I think there's um, sort of a big spectrum of, of um, you know, ideological differences around all this. So it's a little hard to sort of, you know, boil it down in an easy way. Um, you've got, uh, I don't know, if you think about elites like Mitch McConnell, um, they're willing to kind of cynically co-opt Trumpist energy when they have to, but they won't go as far as Kevin McCarthy will go, right? Kevin McCarthy will do a lot more when it comes to um, co-opting Trumpist energy than McConnell will, right? And so it's really this kind of gradation of different kind of, I don't know, um, degrees to which they are all trying to figure out how to harness that energy. I take Ron DeSantis, right? He's like his own animal when it comes to co-opting Trump energy. And I think, you know, a lot of the people kind of coalescing around him, a lot of the elites coalescing around DeSantis are seeing someone who, you know, will actually take that kind of Trumpist energy and use it kind of more effectively than Trump did. And and they are not in the same place that Mitch McConnell is, right? They really want to fight these culture wars. Um, and I don't think McConnell cares about those very much. Maybe just maybe just abortion mainly, right? Um, and so I, that's not a very satisfying answer. But, you know, there are so many different camps at this point that it's very hard to boil it down in some simple way. Your tangent, though, takes us an interesting direction that picks up on some of that, which is the role of the culture war in what we're seeing now, because see, when you talk about how some of these never Trumpers are now willing to embrace things like universal health care and other what we consider more traditionally progressive policies, it seems like one thing that we have witnessed over the last however many years is basically the culture war eating politics and an eating policy that poli- – like on the ground policy matters far less than culture war alignment. And so I spent the first large chunk of my career in libertarian public policy circles and there was a lot of unfortunate like turn to at least sympathy with Trumpism and the right that happened in the last five years in those circles. And a lot of it from where I was was motivated by – I don't like these people's policies. You know, Trump is not a libertarian, right? But um, but I am fed up with the cultural left and cancel culture. And yeah, I think gay marriage should be okay, but now they're kind of overdoing it with expecting me to be a hashtag ally. And so like it was the culture war kind of ate the the policy stuff. And I wonder if the same thing is going on with the Never Trumpers is that we're seeing a cultural realignment and you're like mood affiliating with the people who have the culture preferences you do. And then the policy stuff is, okay, I'm willing to accept whatever policy as long as it's the right side of the culture war. 
In other words, if I understand you correctly, you're suggesting that, you know, the, the, the really the, the serious hardcore never Trumpers are kind of rejecting that cultural politics and sort of, you know, aligning with not exactly with progressives because they're not woke. Right. But they're certainly more sympathetic to wokeness than, you know, everyone to their right. Um, but they are kind of culturally liberal now. Right. They're, they're, they've, they've, I think they've, they've been driven away from the Republican Party in part. I think that's a really interesting insight, actually. They've been driven away from the Republican Party in part by their kind of out of control culture warring, right? And so they're willing to accept policies that they might not be willing to accept because they want to ally with liberals on those fronts. I think that's very interesting. Although, you know, it can get still still more complicated because someone like David Frum, I think, really does support some form of university universal health care, right? Um, Crystal, I don't know. Uh, I think they have come to despise certain elements of the Republican coalition so much that when they hear attacks on Obamacare and the ACA, it just sort of, I hate to use this word, but triggers, you know, that that kind of loathing that they have at this point for those elements in the Republican coalition. And so that kind of supports your reading of it. I mean, it's all very complicated, right? Um, you know, I, I do, I find it very interesting that Bill Crystal is now willing to say that there are fundamental and inherent things to conservatism that essentially led us to Trump, which is not an admission that a lot of never Trumpers are willing to make, right? Like there's, there's even, like you could even kind of break the categories of never Trumpers down to those who are essentially trying to entirely insulate conservatism from any blame from, for Trump at all, right? And those who are willing to say that th there are inherent qualities in conservatism that led straight to Trump, you know, just to complicate it even more. <laughs> I want to ask about the media in all of this because the media has the, – the Trump years and after have not been kind to public perceptions of, of the media, particularly the mainstream media, which you as a member of the Washington Post would certainly be considered part of the mainstream media. Uh, it's – there's been a lot of distrust of it. Um, its image has been tarnished. And one of the things that has seemed to be characteristic of it, but not your reporting, um, which is one of the things I really admire about your work, is this kind of wanting to fit what's happening to the American right. And so it started with kind of Trump seems to come out of nowhere, but he didn't really come out of nowhere because like if you've been paying attention to undercurrents on the American right, it was – it was all there, um, but he seemed to come out of nowhere, and there was an attempt to kind of normalize him. Like he's crass, sure, but he's he's like basically a Republican with maybe more extreme on some policies and so on. And to talk about him and talk about these movements in this way, and then to what, from like my perspective, looks like downplaying just how extreme and fringe and conspiratorial things have become. And I'm curious about the motivations of that. I'll give by way of like example, there was, we recently had an election and right before the election, it looked like Republicans were pulling ahead. And a lot of people in the media were saying, this is because the the notion that like democracy is on the ballot is just shrill. It's 
you know, it's alarmism. Um, the American people aren't buying it. This is this basically things are business as usual. Um, and we know we know that after the fact they were that perception was wrong. Like Americans actually polling data shows they were very concerned about the state of American democracy. But there just seems to be this like fundamental desire to not acknowledge how bad things have gotten on the right. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, I mean, that's also a big topic. You know, I actually was, I I, I think I actually got um, a little bit seduced by the kind of red wave propaganda coming out of the Republican Party and the media's kind of echoing of it to the point where I really, toward the end, I actually wrote a piece where I talked to a bunch of Democrats and ask them, you know, why is it that we're that, that uh, we're seeing you guys have so much trouble, um, you know, make people care about democracy? And you know, this was when I think a lot of Democrats were having serious doubts about where things were going, and so a lot of them were saying, "Look, we're having a lot of trouble getting independents to think about this." to care about it as much of inflation and so forth. And that turned out to be wrong. They turned out to, Democrats themselves turned out to, you know, have underestimated uh, how much that message was resonating with people. So, you know, everybody was surprised by this, I think. Um, But, you know, I, I think the press faces a fundamental problem when it comes to kind of the extremism and radicalism and basic abandonment of democracy we're seeing uh, among large swaths of the Republican Party on the, and on the right. Um, they like a model of American politics, which essentially says, you know, the two parties are, they differ ideologically with each other in various ways. They have different coalitions. You know, sometimes one party wins the middle, other times the other party wins the middle. And they're just kind of locked in a struggle for the middle. And sometimes their bases pull them too far to the edges, <laughs> right? Um, but uh, they don't want to say that one party has strayed far away um, from basic democratic norms and values in a way that the other hasn't because they open themselves up to charges of being not objective. And, you know, by the way, I think this is something you'll be aware of probably as well as anyone, but I mean, the American right spent 50 years trying to create this situation by attacking the mainstream press pretty viciously since at least Nixon, right? Um, uh, For this very purpose, right? To essentially cordon off a chunk of the country to the point where they would simply wouldn't believe a thing the mainstream media ever said, right? And also to kind of frighten mainstream media outlets into kind of, I don't know, tilting the playing field their way by perpetually holding this kind of weapon over their heads by which they would be accused of liberal bias. And you can just see this on Twitter or or even in the coverage. Um, A lot of mainstream reporters fear very seriously being tagged as somehow missing what's going on in real red America, right? And you just never sense any kind of real similar fear on the other side. Take what just happened in this election, right? Everyone was caught off guard by the fact that, you know, large numbers of independents and suburban voters cared about abortion and democracy, right? 
you did not see a whole lot of self-flagellation among reporters saying to themselves, how did I miss what was going on in real America, <laughs> right? Whereas, you know, when Trump won, every single, you know, diner in the Midwest was essentially became like a campground for journalists for, for years. And, and you just don't see that ever happen with Democratic constituencies. And I think that really illustrates the, the basic asymmetry we're talking about here. On the media bias, though, because you do hear, I mean, the media is accused of being biased all of the time. Um, it is the case that, you know, it's like, look at voter registrations of employees of major of newspapers and, you know, the, the major news channels and so on outside of Fox. It is, you know, overwhelmingly. It looks like an English department or a sociology department in terms of the lopsidedness. Oh, sure. I mean, I think that's true. Does, you know. does that play out in a form of bias, though? Like, is there something to the bias question? So I think it works the other way, right? It makes, it makes a lot of journalists even more susceptible to being kind of gamed by the, the fear, right, that they're going to be missing something real, right? Um, and so I've never really understood why, you know, journalists own particular leanings. They're very scrupulous. I mean, they're, they're all real. They're, they're professionals, right? I mean, they, they know they, they're operating within a set of professional norms. They're not going to, like, insert into their copy, like, little things that say, you know, like that look, tilt the coverage. They, 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 they've been doing it for many years in many cases, and they're edited and there's the heavily and there's a whole process and a whole set of professional expectations and so forth. You know, I think where this stuff really kicks in is in kind of assessments of what to be covering and who to be chasing and what narratives to be thinking about, right? So if anything, that kind of leaning on the part of journalists personally makes them more susceptible to telling themselves that maybe conservatives and Republicans have a point when they say that they're in a bubble. And so we better compensate for that. We better go to this Trump diner and see what they think of this. And, you know, it, you saw this play out in this election very clearly. Many, many commentators were really quick to rush to the conclusion that things had shifted in the conservative direction because they were frightened of missing that. Given that there has been this kind of systematic effort to undermine trust in the media, and it, you're right, it does play out often as a lot of people on the right actually think that like New York Times and Washington Post reporters are lying to them in their report, that they are like fabricating their reporting. Um, what can the media do to regain a degree of trust when basically the objection to them on the right, the actual objection to them on the right, is that they're saying things that these people don't want to hear? I don't really know. I mean, I, I guess so, so. So the problem here is that that a lot of the criticism is in bad faith, right? Right. There's a purpose to it. It's instrumental. It's not like actual real criticism. It's not like we really think that the press is biased towards liberals, right? It's more a kind of effort to game the refs. I mean, do you do you agree with that? I mean, you've been steeped in the right for a long time. I mean, this has been basically the program for forever. I agree that I think at the at kind of the elite and intellectuals levels, um, yes, like I think it is in bad faith. But I think that the the base, 
like the ordinary voters, the people at those diners and so on, it's not like they actually believe it. And and I think that's the that's the problem that I'm curious, like how how the media can dig itself out of because if they actually believe it, then the solution can't be like basically saying, no, we're not lying, right? Or or these people are just using us in bad faith. Um, it's because they're not going – because they're just going to basically interpret that as you at the Washington Post lying to them more, right? And they genuinely believe that. Well, I mean I guess you know it's not as if they don't try to, to, to correct this problem, right? I mean what we've just been talking about has been – you know. For many years, a lot of journalists and commentators and and so forth have really, really tried very hard to make the case to conservative voters that there that, that, that there isn't some sort of fundamental and deep bias on the part of the press as an institution, and it's manifested itself. That has manifested itself in the very things we've been talking about, like the constant, you know, the constant sensitivity to the perception that they're missing something going on in Red America. The, you know, the constant efforts to tell themselves that, uh, you know, that they need to get out of their bubbles and, and go to the diners and so forth. And, and none of that seems to work. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know what more can be done. You know, this is not something I've given a lot of thought to, I have to say. Um, I, I feel like, in a way, this is not something that they should be thinking too much about, Right. They should be trying to tell the truth as clearly as they can and, and in an, an, a, an unvarnished way as they can. I don't know if that's going to do anything. Um, it seems like it won't. If anything, it'll make things worse. But I'm not sure if that's something they should be ministering to at all. Should they? I mean, I guess it depends on the importance of a believed press in in a democracy, I mean, it, so I know from your Twitter account that you are a fan of Matt McManus's writings, um, and I am as well. My the other podcast I host, I've had him on a few times, and his uh, work, yeah, great. his work yeah. on postmodern conservatism, I think, speaks to this that there is this kind of fundamental, like, just detachment from reality, and the press, the role the press plays is to inform, and I, you know. Yes, I have my objections to the way that sometimes the press covers certain stories or story selection and so on. But like by and large, the reporting at major press institutions is really high quality. Um, and you, right, you I, know, I, I think that's true. You'd be yeah. well informed if you just read the Washington Post every day and kind of believed all of it versus trying to like figure out the various ways it was wrong and going down the YouTube rabbit holes and so on. Um, that's really important. But it does seem like the right has just detached from that in a way that is much deeper than just disagreement. And it does seem bad for democracy if people are like everything that's being said is simply in this kind of postmodern way, like motivated narrative construction. And I can believe whatever I want as long as it like tells the stories that I want to tell. Yeah, I mean, you could even argue that the very belief that the 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 very belief that the press is as biased as a lot of, I guess, you know, conservatives seem to think it is, the ones that are thinking this in good faith, right? That very belief is itself kind of a sign of that detachment, and you can actually prove it by just taking 
I don't know, if you were to pick up maybe 10 news articles from the major outlets, right, you will see that the Republican position and the Democratic position is represented side by side in every one of them. And if anything, right, the Republican position is given kind of lots of latitude and space when, even in situations when it's just patent BS. I mean, we're having an example of this right now. I mean, here's an example of it, right? I actually did a thing on this today. But, you know, Kevin McCarthy just signaled that the Republican House is going to reinvestigate the findings of the January 6th committee, right? And there's no chance that it's going to be an actual effort to investigate what the January 6th committee found, right? There's just no way. It's not going to be anything like that. What it'll be is an effort to cherry pick findings from uh, the January 6th committee's transcripts and interviews to create kind of fake impressions that stuff was suppressed or create fake contradictions on the part of, you know, the most damning witnesses. It'll be an exercise. And we have seen this in numerous Republican investigations already, you know, from Benghazi, from Benghazi to, you know, some of the stuff around their counter effort on the Russian investigation and so forth. Over and over, it's just mostly BS, right? Not exclusively. Uh, they Sometimes, you know, from time to time, they're right. They find things, right? But most of the time, it's BS. Anyway, if you read today's coverage of, or th this week's coverage of this promise on the part of Kevin McCarthy, it just dispassionately states that House Republicans plan to run a counter investigation into what the January 6th committee uncovered and just treats it as on a, on the same plane as the January 6th committee work. Right. And the January 6th committee work was, you know, based on almost entirely on testimony by Republicans and people who worked for Trump in their own words. Right. And so already you can see, like, if you just a dispassionate look at this kind of fundamental imbalance combined with the fact that conservatives still say the press is biased against them kind of makes you throw up your hands, I think. How do the election results play into this story we're telling and also the concerns that, that you and I have raised today? Because you said there was, there was this narrative that there was going to be a red wave and we did not, we didn't get that. I mean, they, they retook the House, Republicans retook the House, but they didn't retake the Senate, um, and they were defeated. The, most of the most crazy candidates went down in in fairly stark defeat, um, and and even like a lot of the election the election deniers at statewide office all went down. Which was you know, the last step of the show. The show was a re election reaction episode, and all of us were like came out of it feeling a lot more optimistic than we had going into that Tuesday. Does I mean the election doesn't fundamentally change things because it's just an expression of where things actually were. But do the next two or four years look different now based on what we learned a couple of weeks ago in terms of how much power these most fringe elements actually have in the Republican Party? Before I get to that, um, before I try to answer that, um, I, sh I should point out that it's true that Republicans took the House, but by an incredibly narrow margin, right? I mean, 
all the forecasters had it up at around, you know, anywhere from 15 to 25 seats. Some had it higher. Kevin McCarthy predicted what, 60? Is that right? At one point? Didn't he, he predicted 60 seats? I think you had plenty of people out there predicting dozens of seats. And, you know, frankly, I thought it was going to be 20 seats, right? And it only turned out to be a few. And, and that's really ahistorical for a midterm that comes right after um, the, you know, that's an ahistorically low, perfor bad performance by the out party two years after the other party won the White House, right? Um, but I, I do think it probably does disempower these elements pretty significantly, right? In, in concrete ways, I, I'm not sure you're asking about concrete, but I, I think that that's maybe the most important thing. Um, you know, when we talk about the election deniers, that's sort of a soft phrase, but what we're really referring to or have been referring to was the very real possibility of a stolen 2024 in the sense of having, you know, a, a, a Republican election denying governor in a place like Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Michigan or Arizona, um, essentially certifying fake electors for the loser and then those electors being counted by a Republican House. Uh, so not only did none of those governor gubernatorial candidates win, a big reason the Cary Lake defeat is so important, by the way. Um, but a bunch of election denying officials below that level, which could have also helped a plot like that unfold, also went down. Now, the, the sort of the counter thing here is that a lot of House Republicans, the, the, the election deniers in the House, the Republican caucus of the House actually grew. But I think we can't read too much into that. We're talking about mainly Republicans who were reelected and Republicans who won in safe red districts, right? And, you know, even as that did swell, a bunch of the Trumpist candidates, even in the House, went down, right? Like, uh, I think, um, I forget her name, but Caroline Levitt, uh, who in, you know, in, in, in the Northeast, and then Joe Kent out West, right? Candidates like that. And so, it seems to me that the most fundamental way that this movement has been weakened is in their inability to actually capture election machinery that they needed to capture in order to try and nullify the next presidential election. So then looking ahead, because a lot of your work is is assessing and calling attention to these ongoing threats, where do you see – the the most significant threats heading into 2024? Uh, you know, I, I think that actually in some ways the threats have been averted um, temporarily. One thing I think we don't really have an answer to yet is, is whether we are going to take the steps to really, really marginalize the threat during the lame duck. The most important thing that could happen right now, or one of the most important things anyway, is for during the lame duck, uh, Democrats and some Republicans to to um, reform the Electoral Count Act, which is uh, for your listeners the the arcane law that governs how the elect presidential electors are counted in Congress, um, and the holes in which Trump tried to exploit in many ways. Right? Um, again, things aren't as bad as they could have been because there aren't Republican 
governors in some of these swing states who who really might have won, right? That was it was a real possibility. And and of course Republicans hold the House, which is the other piece, right? Just to reiterate, the basic plot would be Republican governor or Republican state legislature appoints or certifies a sham set of electors, then the Republicans in the House of Representatives count those electors, and that creates a crisis. If the Electoral Count Act is reformed, then it will be a lot less likely for a whole bunch of boring and arcane reasons. So that's the first thing. If that can get done, then I think we can really breathe a bit bit more easily about the immediate term of democracy. The second thing is uh, disabling the debt limit as a weapon. Uh, this is, you know, not strictly an electoral thing, but it's a real capacity for extremist forces. And it's a thing that, the, that extremist forces in the Republican Party can really wield to do a whole lot of damage. Uh, if, you know, if, if, if the debt limit isn't raised during the lame duck session, I think we're going to have some pretty serious crises unfolding next year where House Republicans, empowered by the MAGA caucus, which is going to be emboldened, with a thin majority, right? Really demanding major concessions from Democrats uh, in exchange for raising the debt limit. And you're gonna have Trump out there demanding that the MAGA caucus stand firm and calling on quote unquote, my Kevin, as he calls Kevin McCarthy uh, to, to hold the line. I don't know how that actually plays out. I think there are ways that, you know, it doesn't end up doing that much damage if, Democrats and sane Republicans can kind of come together in, in some kind of alliance, but it's certainly going to be pretty damn hectic. And so those are the two big things. Reform the Electoral Count Act, disable the debt limit. If those two things were done, I'd feel like, you know, we're, we're in, in better shape than I certainly expected we would be. Let me turn then back briefly to the press for the final question, which is, again, as we look forward to 2024, and it looks like Trump is very likely to be the candidate, the nominee on the Republican side. Do you think the press will change the way that it covers him versus the way it did in in 2016? Um, and if so, like how should how should the press approach covering a second Trump, or I guess it would be a third Trump election? Or <laughs> well, I mean, I think we did see the press really rise to the occasion in a major way, right? In certain important respects, don't you? I mean, it, it took took the press a while to kind of get its footing, but it really started to dig deep into the ways Trump was threatening U.S. democracy. It, it really, you know, ma- major swaths of the press, press corps got very aggressive about going after the lying, the kind of serial lying and the kind of, you know, totalitarian nature of the kind of propagandistic techniques he was using, it became really a story that was aggressively attacked. And I think that stuff made a difference. I think it let the country know that something serious was up, right? It's a little hard to know exactly how important those things are, but my general sense, I guess, you know, it's hard to know what would have happened if, if we hadn't had COVID. I mean, maybe Trump gets reelected, but my general sense has been that the press really did kind of alert the American people to the degree that the American people really did realize something fundamental was in danger, right? Um, 
So the press kind of got a lot of that right. And so that plus the fact that that um, that these law enforcement investigations are really continuing, right? Here's another thing that could have gone differently, very differently. Uh, law enforcement could have blinked in the face of, of all the, you know, the kind of constant um, threats of violence and, and, and so forth. And it didn't. Right. These things are really proceeding. Whatever you think of the special counsel decision, it's a sign that the investigation is going to get a lot more serious. The two investigations, one into the hoarding of secret documents at, at secret national state secrets at Mar-a-Lago and the other one into the effort to overturn the election. Those are going to get a lot more serious. There will be a lot more revelations about that. And the press loves those types of revelations. So I think those few things together are going to, if, if Trump gets that far, I don't know that he will, by the way, right? I just don't know. I mean, I, I think we don't know what his hold is on his sort of swath of Republican voters at this point. I think it's perfectly plausible that if this stuff gets really serious with law enforcement, that hold really does weaken. I'm not predicting it. I'm just saying it's possible. But, you know, so if Trump, his candidacy kind of, gets pretty far, I think all these factors will make the press coverage of his third run, or maybe is it for, is it fourth run? Didn't he run once before, 2016? Yeah, it'll be his, his third as a nominee. Right. right. Uh, I think the coverage, the, story, the way the story is told will be substantially different, even from 2020, which, by the way, is its own animal, because the press really got its teeth into the COVID story in a major way, right? Which made that different from 2016 and and so forth. So yeah, I think it's gonna be I think it's gonna be significantly different. I think the press actually learned and performed really quite well in, in important respects and will continue to do so. That notwithstanding all the other problems we're talking about. The main problems are really kind of in the coverage of the Republican Party as opposed to Trump, if you think about it. Thank you for listening to Reactionary Minds, a project of the unpopulist. If you want to learn more about the rise of a liberalism and the need to defend a free society, check out theunpopulist.substack.com.